Hello and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, the first episode of 2021. My name is Tom Hollingsworth and I am joining you this week with my amazing co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome back from the holidays. I hope you had a great end to the decade that was 2020 and uh, how are things with you? Uh, I guess I'm okay. Uh, <laughs> as okay as anyone is uh, here in the uh, first week in 2021. Uh, it's good to be back. I really enjoyed our wrap-up episode from uh, 2020, uh, probably more than the rest of the year itself. Uh, so let's hope we can uh, have some fun this year as well. Yeah. Well, the good news is, is that even though we took the week off, uh, a lot of things did go on in the world at the tail end of 2020 and into 2021. So we've got a lot of news that we're going to want to cover with you this week. Absolutely. And um, kicking things off, Tom, let's jump, in, jump right in here. Um, so uh, I don't know how to say this. Um, I think I'm going to say uh, Zai Kahel because I know that's not how it's pronounced. I think it's Zysel or Zixel or something. Uh, anyway, their uh, devices are in the news because of a security flaw again. Um, researchers from the Netherlands have discovered a hard-coded user account with admin privileges. Yay. Uh, it can be accessed via web interface or SSH. Um, it was released a few weeks ago in a firmware update. Um, and uh, the company is quickly rolling out a fix for these devices. Um, firewalls are being patched and AP controllers are soon going to get an update. But until then, um, hey, guess what? If you're using um, Zyhel, uh, you are in hell because uh, you're, uh, you can be breached. Steven, I think that this story is kind of important, not necessarily because we have another IoT type device that is vulnerable, but that this was introduced in a firmware update. Like, like these devices were not vulnerable with this hard-coded user account back in October. Like this update rolled out just a couple of weeks ago and now all of a sudden these Netherlands researchers found it. And of course, you know, go to Shodan.io and everyone's trying to, to breach these things as fast as possible. This goes to show you that the, the delta now between creating a hole and having that hole exploited is shrinking massively. And if you're a manufacturer, you've got to have tighter controls on your on your processes. And guess what? I, I'm just gonna flat out say it. This is not like Microsoft in the 90s when you could just slip a cute little Easter egg into your software and let people find it later. These are the kinds of Easter eggs that are filled with rotten stuff that you don't wanna see. Um, Steven, I know that there's a story that's been kind of floating around in the news regarding some uh, VMware and Nutanix things going on. But uh, while we were gone, uh, things kind of escalated a little bit because VMware has filed a lawsuit against Nutanix for hiring their former COO, uh, Rajiv Ramaswamy. The suit, which was filed just before the end of the year, alleges that Ramaswamy failed to honor his contractual obligations to VMware. Now, the other thing that VMware is saying is that because Ramaswamy had some inside knowledge of the plans for the company and the pathways and things like that, he should have said something to VMware when he was having these negotiations with Nutanix, which evidently he didn't. Um, now, here's where it gets a little crazy because all this is happening in California, and we know that California's legal system is pretty oriented towards the workers because California is an at-will work state, and they historically do not enforce non-competes at all. So most experts are saying this lawsuit's probably going to get tossed, and it was really more for show than anything else. 
Now, see, and we, we kind of waited this story out to see how it was going to play out, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Is, is VMware really making a big deal about this, or was there something on the back end that probably didn't go as well as it should have for all parties involved? Yeah, I think that we need some background here. Um, so first of all, I think it's important to understand that uh, Nutanix has been gunning for VMware literally since the day the company was founded. Um, and probably since before the company was founded. Uh, you know, this is a company that has been trying to, um, you know, trying to uh, knock down VMware, trying to take over their market uh, from the very beginning. And of course, they're going to continue doing that. So uh, that's one thing. The other thing, as you mentioned, is the California legal system. So, I mean, California has a long history of essentially uh, of workers literally walking out of the door of one firm, walking across the street or across the parking lot or even to, you know different floor and uh, starting at a competing firm. That's just how California goes. And you know, if you're talking about any company from Intel to you know, Hewlett Packard to Apple, um, you know, these companies were founded by people who walked out of a former employer to compete with that employer. So we need to be understanding of this situation. But uh, you know, at the same time, uh, this one was handled particularly poorly in my opinion. I mean. Um, the fact is that the guy uh, was a, a pretty high-ranking, you know, VMware employee. He was privy to a lot of VMware information. Um, he was talking to Nutanix at the same time, and he walked right into Nutanix to compete with the company. Um, I, you know, I don't know if you want to call that non-compete or theft of trade secrets or whatever it is that uh, VMware is going to be calling it. Um, and I certainly am not a lawyer and I'm not qualified to weigh in on the merits of this. But, um, you know, I think that this thing is a little different from the typical team of engineers walks out of Juniper and goes to Cisco or something like that. And, you know, um, it, clearly VMware um, thinks that this is a bigger problem than, than you would ordinarily see in a California uh, non-compete situation. Uh, clearly, they know a lot about that. And, um, you know, I, I think that this, uh, they're, well, again, I don't want to guess on the merits, but I would say that... Um, you know, VMware sees this as a different kind of situation, and I think we're all going to need to keep an eye on. Yeah, I, I'm like you. I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not qualified to comment on this. I think maybe my only comment on it will be, if you're interviewing with another company that's a competitor to the one you're working on, at least let somebody know so that when it all comes out in the wash, you're not left holding the pink T-shirt. So in other um, same old story news from Silicon Valley, Cisco announced this week that they're going to crack down on anti-counterfeiting measures. Um, they are adding hologram stickers. They're doing more reconciliation of invoices and, um, and manifests in order to prevent gray market sale of their hardware. Now, gray market is a big deal in a lot of high value uh, markets. Essentially, it means uh, you know, taking an item that is new and maybe not selling as well as you want it to be, um, you know, reselling it maybe as used, uh, maybe as, you know, you break it, you bought it, and, uh, you know, putting it out the back door. Um, in 2020, researchers reported that a growing number of manufacturers were doing exactly this, that they cited gray market as a big concern from both a service perspective, but also as a security perspective. And it's important to notice that too, that you know, Cisco has had issues before with people taking, you know, a, a, a router, you know, unboxing it, you know, messing with the firmware, things like that. Well, not people, uh, let's say companies, let's say countries doing that. So, Tom, uh, what do you think of this story? 
we we saw a similar story coming out of Dell EMC towards the end of the year, which was a little less important because they really weren't they weren't ramping up protections. But Cisco has a thriving gray market community. Um, I used to get emails on a weekly basis from uh, equipment resellers when I used to work for uh, a commercial reseller. Uh, telling me that they could give me Cisco equipment at a third of the cost. And then when you dig into it, it's, well, they were all sold to a chaining company in like Thailand or something. So Cisco has been fighting this for years. And I know from personal experience being tangentially involved that their brand protection system is um, aggressive. But I think that the the bigger part of this story is not the whole thing of, you know, well, Cisco wants to make money on the hardware and make money on the services contract. It's the security part. And, and I, we all kind of hearken back to that uh, Bloomberg story about inserting, uh, you know, things into the supply chain and, oh, how could someone do this? And and, and into the story was, was debunked quite roundly. But could you imagine what would happen if someone was able to intercept this and insert some kind of, you know, nefarious third-party device into the thing, and you had no idea? Um, that that would scare the pants off of most people. So I think that while Cisco does have a profit-based motivation here, I think that a lot of these types of programs are going to start coming back to this is a security thing. These are you know important pieces of hardware in the supply chain. And we're going to verify that they are invalid because we don't want anyone in a nation state or in a large organized hacking group to be able to intercept information completely surreptitiously. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is not an arbitrary or abstract concept. This is something that literally has happened with Cisco routers in the past. So I, I feel like they're pretty justified in this move. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and time will tell if more companies are going to really start jumping on board with this. I think that it, we're probably going to see that becoming the norm of, of these kinds of robust protections. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and jump into some of our focus stories for this week, because there were some stories that merit just a little bit more discussion. Um, the first, probably the biggest one for the tech industry is uh, Google workers took a bold step this past Monday to organize a union for themselves. Um, with the support of the existing Communication Workers of America Union, the new Alphabet Workers Union was announced and opened to all 120,000 Google employees and employees of Alphabet, which is the holding company that kind of owns Google and its various uh, counter uh, component parts. Now, this move comes as the tech industry upheaval continues. We've talked repeatedly about um, remote workers and companies moving out of Silicon Valley and a bunch of other things that are causing some problems. In addition to the fact that there are a large number of employees that work for companies like Google, which are considered to be uh, temporary or contract workers that don't typically have the same great benefits, including free lunches and those crazy beanies that they wear. Um, the reports say that about 300 employees have currently signed a union card and they're working to organize elections and things like that. And that's important because under US law, if you've signed a union card, you are incapable of being fired for being a union employee until there's some uh, negotiations that happen at the federal level. But here's where it gets a little crazy because we all know that Google has made no secret in the past that they are not in favor of their employees unionizing. And until Google recognizes this labor union effort or 50% of the employees who are eligible to join the union actually do join it, 
there's not really a whole lot that can go on. In fact, it, a lot of people in the news have said that this is weird because normally you don't announce that you're forming a union until you have a critical mass to make it stick. And it feels like the, the, the Alphabet Workers Union is really tossing their cap over the fence here to get people to organize, to kind of force Google to make a decision one way or the other. Um, now, Stephen, we, we kind of haven't really talked about this in, in the episodes up to this point, but I mean, obviously with Google being one of the biggest names out there, what does this mean for the tech industry? Because one of the things that I've always heard is, you know, you guys are the, like the last big holdout of, of big business that isn't unionized. Yeah, and I think that that's a, um, really the story here is that, you know, the tech industry, um, you know, there have been unionization efforts in the tech industry for, uh, well, for decades, and, um, and some of them have succeeded. Now, it's interesting that people are calling this the first ever tech union because, um, well, for example, Google's cafeteria workers are already unionized, um, and there have been some efforts to unionize at other tech companies, including some, uh, like, mildly successful ones. So um, this is not the first first, but it's certainly the big one. Um, if these folks can successfully unionize Google's employees, um, then uh, really the, you know, the gloves are off for unionization in tech. Um, it's important to note too, that this union would not just apply to the employees, because remember one of the, I don't know, tricks that these companies do is they have a lot of contractors, a lot of you know, uh, semi-employees who are skirting the law, frankly, uh, and, and you know, I'm not throwing any stones at Google here, particularly, but uh, you know, the industry as a whole loves to you know kind of pretend that people aren't real employees in order to deny them benefits and beanies, as you say. Um, well, uh, a union would apply to those folks as well, and so I think that there's a very good chance that we could end up uh, with a successful unionization effort here. Um, you know, but that being said, I don't think that we're going to get a, an officially recognized union at Google anytime soon because they would literally have to unionize half the workforce. And that's just not going to happen. Google's not going to let that happen. They're going to fight this thing because they don't want these workers unionized because they don't want to have to pay them more because, you know, they've got, you know, like you said, 227,000 employees. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's a really interesting story to me. Um, you know, this is an effort as well that's, uh, that the unions have been pushing. Um, you know, they have been uh, advocating for tech workers to unionize for a long time. This particular effort is actually, you know, sponsored and, and part of a, an effort, an overall effort by the union uh, to make that happen. Um, I think that this, uh, this could be a really interesting story. Uh, at the very least, what we're going to see is the threat of a union perhaps improving the lives of tech workers. Um, you know, I'm thinking particularly of, uh, you know, content moderators, um, you know, contract workers and so on, who frankly have had a really hard time of it for these years. Uh, and I think that this could really, really benefit them. So, you know, we'll see what happens with it. But, um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm cautiously optimistic about this union effort. Yeah, I, I think that this is really aimed at the people kind of on that lowest rung, the, the, the folks who do the hard work, but maybe don't get all of the, the beautiful credit that, that some of the higher up employees do. So I think we're going to see a lot of traction down there. But I don't think that once we get past that mid tier that we're really going to see a lot of people picking it up because frankly, they don't need a union. Um, they have the power of their skill set and the power of the voracious appetite for Silicon Valley to just throw money at people to get them to walk across the parking lot. And so it's it's not a huge deal for them. But I think what you like you said, this is going to scare just enough people in Silicon Valley 
to say, okay, well, maybe we need to start being better to the people that we are building our empires upon to keep them from essentially rising up and saying, we're not going to take it anymore. Um, you know, props to the people who are, are doing this effort, whether or not you're a pro or anti-union person, you have to admire the fact that people who work in the industry are willing to stand up for what they believe in, especially in an industry that has historically been pretty anti-speak up against your bosses. Absolutely. Um, and I think that that's, uh, you know, no matter what, I think it's a good thing. Um, for the, the sort of lower rung uh, tech workers to sort of to speak up and, and organize in this way. So I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with this. Um, you know, another story, Tom, that we should probably continue talking about after 2020 um, and, and one that really scooped all of the news from 2020 in our uh, wrap up show from last time is of course the massive uh, Russian hacking attempts against uh, US companies. Now, it's important to realize that this is essentially corporate espionage. It's not, um, which is explicitly legal. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was an interesting uh, angle on this story. Uh, you know, governments are allowed to try to hack into corporations in other countries. They're just not allowed to go to war with them. It's, it's pretty, pretty nuts. Anyway, um, so the news has come out. Well, more news has come out here. Um, essentially, uh, in a report released on New Year's Eve, the Washington Post says that Microsoft was hacked by one of these groups as well, and that their source code was accessed. Um, you know, it wasn't specified exactly what happened or exactly what source code, um, but uh, you know, it, it's the same hackers that were suspected of breaching FireEye through SolarWinds and then all these other companies. And of course, the list of companies that have been accessed uh, as part of that, you know, horrible hack against SolarWinds Orion have uh, has, has just continued to grow. Um, Tom, what are we going to hear about this in 2021? Uh, we're just going to keep hearing more and more of these things coming out because like right before the end of the year, a lot of folks were doing a little research about the number of companies that could have potentially been accessed based on some command and control traffic and, and Microsoft was on the list. But there were a lot of other ones too, and and the fact that you know it now appears that they're they're going after things like source code, they're either looking to copy it to do other things, or worse yet, they're looking to replicate the success that they had with uh, with SolarWinds. This is just it's bad because they were able to get as far as they did, and it's bad that no one was able to catch it. And I think that that ultimately is going to be the problem that a lot of folks are going to be navel gazing about for the next, I don't know, six to seven months is why did we not know about this? I mean, we all come back to that apocryphal story of Target's POS system getting hacked and, you know, the, the register credit card readers talking to a server that they should have never been able to talk to. We all should have learned from that. And, and what did we learn? Nothing because there is absolutely no reason for your monitoring system to have ever been able to talk to any servers other than the ones that were designated. And as we, we step into a world where things like zero trust security and intent are huge selling points for networking and security vendors, uh, we have to stop back, we have to take a big step back and go, okay, well, they're giving me all the tools that I need to prevent this from happening. What is it about my corporate culture that is allowing this to occur? I mean let's just set aside the fact that that a Russian nation sponsored group was able to use a backdoor that they installed to get into one of the biggest tech companies in America. Why were they able to have free run inside of the corporation? Why was the source code anywhere that anybody who was unauthenticated could get to it? 
I mean, you know, I, I'll, I'll tell just a real quick story. When I worked at IBM, um, we worked in a, uh, in a pod where you had to have a badge to get through our door. And yet we were still subject to the same security audits as the rest of the manufacturing plant. So if we happened to leave a piece of paper on our desk that had internal IP address information or something like that, and one of the security auditors walked through and, and it like tested our desk drawers and, and they weren't locked, we would get written up for it. And I asked my manager about it one time. I said, this isn't fair because there's no way for them to get into our pod without a badge. And she said, yeah, but just think of what might happen if they could. We still have to treat this office as if it was the most secure place on the planet because the likelihood of someone breaching one lock and having the free run of the place is higher than you think. And I think Microsoft and a lot of other companies are gonna to need to learn that lesson in 2021. You literally cannot trust anyone at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that, that that's uh, the right way to look at this. Um, you know, I mean, we, we've got a situation here where, um, you know, we basically it was a privilege escalation attack. Um, you know, they, they got into one system, the monitoring system, um, and used that to basically run amok in a lot of these uh, environments. And frankly, that shows that a lot of these companies aren't employing, I don't even want to say best practices. I would just want to say basic practices of, of information security. Um, you know, I think that it, most InfoSec professionals are pretty horrified by the fact that a monitoring system was able to be exploited by this, because of course, that means that the, 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 the credentials must have given them access to, you know, the next system and the next system and the next system like Domino's. And, um, you know, I think there's plenty of blame to go around here, but I think that one message that I'd like to send out there to the people watching this um, <laughs> is you know, basically you know, your company is probably vulnerable to this too. And uh, you know, it's time to really try to escalate this in order to make sure that uh, you know, more companies are doing a better job of information security. Yeah, I think that's a really good takeaway from this, Stephen. All right, one more story that we wanted to kind of uh, call attention to, do a little focus on, and it, quite honestly, it's one of my favorite topics. Um, an activist investor, called Third Point is currently riling up some of the folks over at Intel. Uh, they sent a letter last week, coincidentally at the end of the year, uh, to the Intel chairman of the board, pushing for some changes to outsource some of their manufacturing capacity, sell off some of their less than stellar acquisitions that they've been making over the last five years. One that was specifically called out was Altera from back in 2015. Um, Intel, of course, played the diplomatic card and said that they welcome the opportunity to explore options with Third Point. Um, for their part, Third Point really didn't say anything aside from the letter, which was shown to people at Reuters. They also didn't promise not to gut the company and run like dogs into the night whenever they got their one extra 1%, as most activist investors are wont to do. Um, Stephen, the fact that the activist investors are publicly kind of calling Intel out for locking some of their shareholder value away. Um, what does this mean for the folks at Intel who've quite honestly taken some, some good shots to the jaw in 2020? And what does it mean for the tech industry as a whole? Well, I think that, you know, the interesting thing to me is that the third point went after, um, well, the gorilla, the big gorilla, Intel. Uh, you know, I mean, this is, this is exactly the same thing that we've seen happen again and again and again with so many companies. Um, you know, I mean, uh, and a lot of companies have basically responded pretty well to these, uh, you know, to these things if they've been managed, you know, if they've managed to respond at all, they've responded pretty well and done moves that ended up benefiting the company, benefiting the shareholders, also benefiting the market and the employees for the most part, you know. Uh, you know, that being said, um, 
I don't think the, the, that these activist investors generally care whether it benefits the employees or even their shareholders. I think they want it to benefit themselves. Um, you know, the things that they're calling Intel out here for, um, frankly, are things that Intel themselves, I'm sure, already knows. Uh, you know, they've made some very high profile, expensive acquisitions, and some of those haven't really panned out all that well. So, you know, you mentioned Altera, um, you know, Intel is now, you know, the leading FPGA company and FPGAs are really, really cool. But um, I'm not sure that Intel has gotten the value out of that investment that they wanted. Uh, you know, that being said, we're starting to see them do more with those FPGAs. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of the recent, uh, you know, the DPU cards that they've introduced with FPGAs on board. Um, so sure, maybe that's going to happen. Um, you know, similarly, you know, you look at uh, Intel storage efforts, you know, um, you know, Optane has taken a while to uh, really ramp up. Um, I don't know whether it's a profitable business yet. Uh, it might be, I'm hearing, but it might not be. Um, but even so, that would only be net and that wouldn't reflect probably the uh, massive investment that Intel has put into this thing over the years. Uh, they did divest of their NAND flash and, uh, you know, client device business recently to SK Hynix. Um, I think that was a good move. I think it was a good move for SK. It was good move for Intel. Uh, you know, this is a business that they didn't need to be in. Um, and I think that Intel is going to be taking more of those hard looks. Hopefully Intel management can, you know, kind of uh, weather this assault by this particular uh, activist investor, and hopefully they can make some good decisions here. Um, I think the big decision, the gorilla in the room, is uh, the whole idea of Intel as an integrated device manufacturer, a company that owns that fabs its own chips. And um, I think that what the activists would like, I think that what a lot of investment analysts would like, and I think that something that Intel's a little nervous about would be um, anything to do with um, uh, spinning out the fabs. So essentially, um, you know, AMD did this years ago. Um, you know, you've got Texas uh, TSMI, uh, really dominating and moving forward with, um, you know, manufacturing, Samsung moving forward with manufacturing. Uh, Intel has struggled. Uh, they're now a good couple of generations behind some of their competitors in terms of their um, semiconductor manufacturing power and, and capabilities. Uh, I think that the investment investors are thinking, well, get rid of that stuff, focus on your designs, you know, outsource your manufacturing. Um, I don't know that Intel's going to do that. Um, frankly, I don't know that Intel can do that, and I'm not sure that you should do it because, of course, there's also national security considerations here. I know that the DoD is very concerned about a fabulous Intel future because they want to make sure that uh, you know we can manufacture integrated circuit circuits in the United States. Uh, you know, they recently you know forced you know Taiwan to invest in a plant here in the U.S. Uh, we'll see when that gets ramped up. Um, so there's all sorts of things going on here that are you know really big big stories and this um in activist investor thing is really just a needle right to the heart of all that saying we've got to do something intel let's do it um i think intel knows what they need to do i think they know how they need to proceed here um but i don't know that it's going to make the investors happy um, you know, I'll, I'll finish up with one uh, interesting fact. If you look at the, um, the valuation of Intel as a business, the entire business uh, that Intel is, everything from, you know, uh, self-driving cars to FPGAs to, you know, connectivity to CPUs to AI to software to storage, all this stuff, the entire business is valued about the same as the uh, semiconductor fab part of the business. In other words, if they were to split this off, 
they would unlock the entire business, everything, almost everything you think of Intel would be a zero cost to the investors. That is a tremendous amount of money. We're talking, you know, many, many billions of dollars here. And the activist investors are circling because they see this and they see that this company is dramatically, drastically undervalued. And they've got to be looking at companies like Western Digital that recently, you know, kind of reorganized, rejiggered, unlocked a lot of that value and basically proved that the company was worth more than this portion of the company. That's going to happen at Intel. I'm not sure how it's going to be. I'm not sure if this management is going to make it happen, but that's going to happen at Intel. And this company is going to be dramatically more valuable to investors as a result. Yeah, I, I we see this cycle a lot in a lot of other tech industries. I know that there's been an active investor, an activist investor for Juniper Networks that's done something very similar. And and I will I will say that having seen the other side of it, I think that the company came out better in the long run. I just think that the problem is the growing pains in the middle when you basically have a group of people who are not invested in the technology, they just care about their money, complaining over and over again. And, and, and I think it's funny that there's a, there's a huge amount of strategy that goes into these corporate decisions. Do we buy this company? Do we spin this out? And, and they, nobody seems to give any input during those discussions. It's only when it fails or when the bigger company is a liability because they're not monopolistic enough to keep driving the share price up that that suddenly someone takes issue with it and starts making all of these what at the time seem unreasonable demands to to break things up it's almost like it's it's like the the uh, the antitrust aspect of a government except we're not breaking you up because you're too powerful we're breaking you up because you're not making us enough money um, i don't know what the future of that's going to be because let's be fair my finance classes are 25 years ago but I think what's going to end up happening in the long run is that some of these companies who kind of have a, a, a position, who have a, a course laid out, are going to have to start pushing back. And they're going to have to be willing to sacrifice a little bit of their stock price to keep control of their company. Because the more successful these activist investors, folks like Elliott Management and Third Point and Carl Icahn, the more successful they become at basically turning that aircraft carrier the more they're going to do it. And you don't want your entire company beholden to someone who owns 8% of your stock. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that's, you know, that's really the, the challenge here. Um, but I will say this, um, if any management team was up to the challenge of resisting an activist investor, it's Intel. So give them hell guys. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and wrap up today's episode. Thank you all very much for joining us in this brand new year. Um, we're still in the same old places, though. So if you want to watch us every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time, you can head on over to our YouTube channel. If you're not already there, it's youtube.com slash Gestalt IT video. You can also follow us over on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Gestalt IT. You can also find us on your favorite podcast application of choice because we publish the rundown on a weekly basis for folks who just want to listen to us uh, when they're doing maybe some of those New Year's resolution exercises that everybody seems to be getting involved in. Um, we also have a lot of other great content on our website at gestaltit.com. Um, I know that Stephen's been uh, covering some of the events that he's been doing and putting out some great podcast episodes. Uh, Stephen, uh, what's something that you're super excited about that's coming up either this week or next? Well, um, certainly, as you mentioned, uh, you know, we've got some uh, some great podcasts uh, over for the uh, 
on-premise IT roundtable. You can also find me uh, weekly for the Utilizing AI podcast. We just kicked off season two, and here's a little clue. Uh, we're doing a little fun uh, three questions thing at the end, kind of a lightning round at the end that I think that you won't want to miss. So uh, check that out. Um, also, we've got a storage field day event coming up. So if you're excited about storage, uh, you know, tune in uh, at the end of January. Uh, and we will have uh, three days of great presentations and discussion with uh, storage nerds like myself. Uh, that's Storage Field Day. Yeah, just go to techfieldday.com to learn more. Uh, one more thing I'd like to ask everyone to do is if you're enjoying this podcast, um, head over to LinkedIn and hit the uh, Gestalt IT page. We would love to hear from you there. Yeah, exactly. We, we publish a lot of the great content that we uh, produce over there as well. And of course, LinkedIn being the, the new hub for a lot of folks to uh, trade and share information, we, we definitely want to see you there and also uh, let you share some of the great stuff that we do. Uh, but for this week, uh, for myself and for Stephen Foskett, we're going to uh, head on out and we'll start looking at the news again so we can bring you another great rundown episode next Wednesday. And for all of us here at Gestalt IT, we hope that you all have a super sparkly year. Bye-bye.